Hello, everyone. Welcome to our live stream. Uh, this is Manar Mohawash Adli. I'm the founder and editor in chief of Mit Press News. Um, if you are just joining us now, uh, we usually like to spend our first minute of every live stream asking all of our uh, readers and viewers uh, to share this live stream on their channels, on their pages. And so right now, um, Alan, the link is live. So if you want to share it uh, on Twitter, we are broadcasting yeah, sure. live on Twitter. Um, we have two very special guests today. We have Chris Hedges and Alan McLeod. Before we get our panel started, again, we're asking everybody to help us beat social media algorithms. Facebook is suppressing suppressing con, uh, content about uh, Israel's massacre in Gaza. So we ask everybody to share this live stream. We are live on Twitch. We are live on YouTube. We are live on Twitter as well. So a lot of channels here. And please subscribe to them as well. So I'm just going to share this really quick on our Twitter page. see here. Where's Mint Press? All right, so Mint Press News has the live link that shows us right now, so we're going to share that. All right, so we are going to get started here. And the link is the one we've got, or is it a different one? in the top of the screen, the restream link. Uh, it's the one, no, not that one. Don't share that one. <laughs> that one is to get into the live stream. So I would delete that ASAP. Um, you'd want to share the link that's uh, on our Twitter page. Because I think somebody just tried, a couple people are trying to join the, the live stream. Can you delete that, uh, Alan? Yeah, that's already, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to remove these people right now. Well, that's kind of funny. Okay. All right. So welcome again, everybody. My name is Manar Mohawash Adli. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News. Welcome to today's live stream. The most recent Israeli violence against Gaza is causing many liberals to finally turn their backs on the apartheid regime. Yet the American religious right continues to strongly back it. Evangelical pastors across the country continue to support Israel as the state's creation and existence fulfills many Christian prophecies about the coming of the end of times. Texas televangelist John Hagee, for example, condemned the fake news media for lying about Israel. The Israeli government, too, has criticized the media coverage and is carrying out a war against journalists, bombing press buildings, and killing local reporters. Yet, though, yet through all of this, much of the elite agenda-setting media in the West continues to frame the assault as merely a conflict between two equal sides engaged in a clash and a religious dispute. Um, here to talk today about the origins of the Christian right support for Israeli apartheid is uh, Chris Hedges, and or both Chris Hedges and Alan McLeod, excuse me. Chris is a writer and a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who spent nearly two decades as a foreign correspondent. He was Middle East Bureau Chief of the New York Times until the newspaper forced him out due to his stance against the war in Iraq. Today, he hosts the show on Contact on RT. His most recent book is America. The farewell tour. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. Sure, not at all. 
Uh, our second guest is Alan McLeod. He is senior staff writer at Mint Press News. After completing his PhD in sociology and journalism studies in 2018, he published two books about the media, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, and Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. He's an expert in global media. Thank you both for coming on. I'm going to get the screen here to show all of us. There we go. So, Chris, I want to start by asking you about this latest attack against the Al-Aqsa Mosque on May 7th. The root of this conflict goes back decades. Uh, evangelical churches across the country are okay with the destruction of Islam's third holiest site in preparation of end of times prophecy. Can you explain this to us? Yes. And, and let me just preface that by saying that I come out of a religious tradition. My father was a Presbyterian minister. My mother was actually a seminary graduate. I graduated from Harvard Divinity School. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, unlike a lot of critics of the Christian right, I'm biblically literate. Um, and I wrote a book about a decade ago called American Fascist, the Christian Right and the War on America that spent two years looking at this movement, which I uh, look at it as a political movement, uh, that it sacralizes the worst aspects of American imperialism, white supremacy, and American capitalism. I equated it to the so-called German Christian Church, uh, which was established uh, under uh, the Nazis and was pro-Nazi. Uh, I didn't use the word fascist lightly. Um, I think that they are her Christian heretics and have perverted, distorted, uh, and deformed uh, the gospel to uh, support their ideology. So all of that by background. Uh, and yes, the uh, end times prophecy uh, is has this bizarre notion that uh, the, the second temple will be rebuilt uh, over, which would mean the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, that, uh, the, that the Armageddon will take place in uh, Israel. I mean, the, 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 the and that this uh, requires Jewish domination as a precursor to the end times. Uh, of course, the Jews who don't convert will be eviscerated. There's very graphic and bloody descriptions of what will happen to them in Tim LaHaye's End Time series, uh, which uh, are some of the best-selling books in the United States. They don't make the New York Times bestseller list because uh, the way and if because if there was a true uh, uh, accounting of the best-selling books, so all top 10 books every week would be so-called Christian books. Uh, and so they uh, define it as a genre to essentially exclude it from the list. Um, and, uh, and so there is this bizarre alliance between these right-wing uh, Netanyahu and the ultra-right in Israel and uh, the Christian right, uh, even though at their core, the, the Christian right is deeply anti-Semitic because it doesn't recognize the legitimacy of Judaism itself. Uh, and that uh, political alliance is strengthened as a new generation of American Jews uh, no longer have the uh, emotional ties to Israel that the older generation has, and has many of them have begun to question the uh, uh, murderous repression of the apartheid state of Israel. I speak all over the country at college campuses, and I make it a point to meet with the Students for Justice in Palestine groups on each campus. And, uh, you know, upwards of half of them are Jewish. 
Uh, and the is, Israel is uh, deeply cognizant of this fact that they need to build new alliances. And you've seen the Netanyahu government reach out to Bolsonaro in Brazil and Hungary and these other far right. Of course, he was a close ally of Trump. So uh, that, that's been a kind of shift. Uh, the APAC, the Israel lobby, still has a lot of political muscle because it has a lot of money. Uh, and, it, and everyone should watch The Lobby, which was this uh, amazing documentary put out by Al Jazeera. They had an undercover reporter go into these Israel, uh, pro-Israel groups in the United States. Israel got it banned. It was never broadcast, but there's a pirated copy on Electronic Intifada. Uh, and, and they're quite explicit about how uh, they will bundle uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in each congressional district, the Israel lobby, in order to bankroll compliant candidates that will do the bidding of Israel. So the system has and remains, we see it in the uh, response of the Biden administration hostage to uh, the Israel lobby. But in the in the kind of uh, grassroots Jewish community, Israel's support, unequivocal support for Israel is eroding quickly, which is why you see this new uh, alliance with the Christian right. And you just wrote an op-ed about this very topic, about Israel's latest incursion into Gaza, Israel, the big lie. Can you break down this article for people? And by the way, this article is on our website and on SharePost. Um, Yeah. Uh, So, you know, I spent uh, seven years in the Middle East. Uh, I was the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Uh, I'm an Arabic speaker. I guess I probably have to stop saying that because I left in 95 to cover the war in the former Yugoslavia, so my Arabic has deteriorated. But I, I spoke Arabic, not fluently, but but well enough that I could uh, <clears throat> certainly function within uh, the Arab world. I uh, spent weeks of my life in Gaza, uh, and, uh, you know, the... the uh, um, have watched the Israel's military machine attack an occupied and entrapped population. Uh, the whole rhetoric that is used to describe these Israeli assaults is false. Uh, the Palestinians do not have mechanized units. They do not have an air force. They do not have a Navy, missiles, heavy artillery, serious command and control, not to mention a U.S. commitment provided under Obama uh, to provide $38 billion in Uh, defense aid and weapons sales for Israel over the next decade. So the whole notion that it's uh, exercising the right to defend itself is uh, a misnomer. It it is violating numerous uh, UN resolutions and Geneva Convention protocols to carry out an egregious war crime uh, and, and, uh, and mass murder. Uh, And, uh, you know the the what the rhetoric that emanates from Jerusalem and Washington uh, it has no correlation to the kind of wholesale slaughter that uh, takes place on the ground. So there's a kind of false equivalency that the media picks up on between Israel and Palestinian uh, violence. Something I saw in Bosnia, where I was in Sarajevo when it was surrounded by the Serbs, we were being pounded by hundreds of 90 millimeter tank rounds. Uh, 105 howitzer shells, Katusha rockets, constant sniper fire. And uh, because of the arms embargo, the Bosnian government, largely Muslim in the city, was reduced to small arms and very light mortars, about 60 millimeters. And they would fire back in the same way that Hamas fires back. Uh, And there would be some casualties 
in the same way there are some casualties in Israel, uh, but 90% of the killings in Bosnia were carried out by the Serbs, and that's also statistically true in uh, Israel. And then, of course, like the Serbs, the Israelis are the principal violators of international law. Well, and I think that, you know, you discussing, uh, touching on Israel or Palestinians' right to defend themselves against, you know, hundreds of bombs I read that were dro- being dropped on Gaza, on Gaza uh, within just a couple of hours. And yet the media continues to uh, go on with the headlines and describe this as, you know, Hamas, Hamas using uh, human shields and to justify the right. complete massacre of like entire I mean, families. I, I've dealt with the Israelis this line for so many years. I mean, basically all two million people in Gaza are considered human shields by the Israelis. I mean, look, these people uh, look, go back to the attacks in 2014 of 51 days of relentless bombardment, 2,200 Palestinians, including 551 children killed. Uh, and uh, Israel took out UN schools, and it was always the excuse. Uh, you know, they did this on the March of Return when they were shot down. I don't know the final number. It was quite high. It was about 180, if I remember, uh, unarmed, peaceful protesters uh, and again, argued that they were human shields, but the, from their own footage, there was nothing in back of the people they shot. I mean, human shields for what? For whom? For uh, So, yeah, that's the kind of line. I just want to say about the rockets, it's in a totally understandable response. But I do think, uh, having spent 20 years covering conflicts around the globe, indiscriminate fire, which the rockets are in a civilian population, is considered a war crime. Uh, and uh, I, I don't want to weasel my way out of that uh, because it, that's that's a fact. Um, and I think denying it doesn't help those of us who are trying to hold Israel to account because, of course, the most serious, egregious, massive, sustained, and ruthless war crimes are being committed by Israel. Absolutely, they absolutely are. And Alan, um, you know, a lot of people have been commenting about the media's uh, one-sided coverage. Uh, of this conflict, what are some of the most, some of the most egregious uh, trends that you've spotted during the attacks against Gaza? Um, well, I suppose, let me take you back a few years. Uh, about 10 years ago, there was a leaked document from a pro-Israeli propaganda firm called the Israel Project, which did a lot of focus groups across America and advised pro-Israel advocates on how to frame the situation. They even had, uh, you know, uh, guidances on words that work, words that don't work, sentences to avoid, etc. And the chapter about framing the conflict, not as Israel versus Palestine, which doesn't work, but as Israel versus Hamas. The Hamas, and even to this day, we see media uh, using that sort of line, uh, using this uh, propaganda, this framing uh, for the Israelis for free. So we constantly hear about, you know, Israel's uh, clashes with Hamas. But looking at the actual footage, it seems pretty clear that uh, very often Hamas are not involved. You know, When Israel launched a strike on the Associated Press and Al Jazeera building, was that an attack or a clash with Hamas? Or was it a, an attack and a clash with Hamas when uh, they blew up a mosque or uh, they destroyed a bookshop and publishers in Gaza like they did on uh, Tuesday? No, Hamas was not there. And yet still we're talking about Israel versus Hamas rather than Israel attacking uh, Palestine. 
And even if they were talking about Israel-Palestine, they tend to both sides the conflict in a way that is really quite uh, grotesque when you really think about it. The casualties on one side are hundreds of times, in a lot of cases, the casualties on the other. This is really not a sort of issue where both sides are at fault. I mean, they are at fault, but uh, one is very clearly in the wrong far more than the other. Um, we saw a lot of uh, headlines talking about how Israel and, and Palestine are trading blows. Uh, Chris is quite right to talk about the rockets, but we have to remember the Hamas rockets are nothing like the Israeli rockets, which are the best in the world supplied by General Dynamics or Lockheed Martin and are laser-guided bombs, whereas Hamas's ones are, in a lot of cases, homemade ones, and they don't have anything like the firepower. Um one very, very common thing that a lot of people have talked about is how media use the active voice when they're talking about Israeli deaths and the passive voice when, uh, when they're talking about Palestinian voices, uh, deaths. So, for instance, the Associated Press had uh, a headline, Rockets Kill Two Israelis, 26 ga- Die in Gaza as Israel Hits Hamas. Now, the framing of that is pretty interesting. The active voice is used when talking about Palestinians killing Israelis, but the passive voice is when the opposite is the case. And it lets people, it sort of suggests to people that there's no obvious person or group that is responsible for the deaths of these Gazans. Maybe they just died in accidents, who knows? And that is absolutely categorically against everything you learn in journalism school which tells you to always avoid using the passive voice unless you're unclear about who is responsible and who is in the wrong. And this constantly happens time after time after time. I have noticed that, to be fair to the Associated Press, since their headquarters got by Israel a couple of days ago, um, coverage has changed a little bit, but it is you know, still that sort of um, clash that sort of uh, both-sizing thing that's still going on. They're not framing it as an attack on Palestine, much more of a sort of centuries-old conflict and who can say who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And so they're, you know, just uh, just sort of falling back on these old uh, and uh, very well-used tropes of uh, angry Palestinians versus the only democracy in the Middle East. And this is basically the framing that's been used for for years to sort of um, whitewash any sort of violence that uh, corporate media uh, in some ways just kind of approves of. So we saw, for instance, uh, in Bolivia in 2019, when the US-backed dictatorship started massacring protesters who were trying to uh, demand a return to democracy, that was called a clash. We also saw uh, the Great March of Return. We saw... uh, Newspapers like the New York Times talk about, you know, a clash between Israel and uh, Gazans or Israel and Palestinians. But this wasn't a clash. This was, you know, a premeditated murder. Even the IDF in a lot of their tweets saying we know where every bullet went. And yet still media carry water for the Israeli government by calling it a clash. And I think that's really uh, that's really some of the most pernicious reporting I've noticed. And Chris, you spent as you said, you know, in the Middle East, about 20 years uh, covering uh, war and conflict. You spent a lot of time working as the main bureau chief for the Middle East uh, for the New York Times. Uh, Talk to me about some of the propaganda that you are seeing coming out of the New York Times now, and how does that compare to their coverage when you were working at the New York Times? Has has anything really changed, or is it the same? 
No, I think Alan's right. It's it's how you how you frame what's happening. Um, uh, you know the the conflicts that I covered in Gaza. I mean, one has to remember that in a news organization like AP or the New York Times, they're very uh, uh, there's very powerful uh, centers of editing where when reports come in, they make sure they're cleaned up. Uh, in uh, you know to use their words so that it's framed in the proper way. I mean, oftentimes the reporters, I actually, I spent seven years in the Middle East and much of my time in places like Gaza. I don't think there was really any much daylight between myself and the other reporters on uh, Israel's egregious uh, war crimes and lies. I mean, you know, they would talk about surgical strikes against bomb-making factories, and we'd be on the street where there'd be rows of bodies of little children, uh, or in Al-Shifa Hospital, where uh, you know, so, but they are quite effective and they're quite powerful in terms of uh, the ability to influence. So, for instance, uh, after 2014, the New York Times reporters who went in and did what we call them TikToks actually did the uh, Hebron uh, Mosque massacre. I did that TikTok for the New York Times. So, what happened almost minute by minute when Baruch Goldstein went in there and massacred uh, Palestinian worshipers? So when you look, go back and look at that TikTok, that that kind of reconstruction of what happened, uh, it's a fascinating example of how the narrative is uh, framed and diluted. Uh, so every other paragraph, there would be a Palestinian talking about what they had either uh, witnessed or what they had undergone uh, or the suffering that they had endured. And then that would immediately be followed by a paragraph from an IDF spokesperson in Jerusalem, essentially uh, dismissing uh, those allegations. Uh, and by the end of the article, it really, the, the message is you can believe whatever you want to believe. Um, it isn't that, 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 I mean, yes, the Palestinian, uh, I mean, the IDF spokespeople are lying, uh, but it's an accurate quote of their lies. Uh, so at the end of the article, um, you, you've essentially blunted uh, the reality of what's taken place. That's, that's the most common Technique. Now, you know, I covered Israel. I also covered Bosnia. And uh, when the Serbs committed similar uh, war crimes, massacres in villages, <clears throat> I did uh, seek to reach out to Pali or to Belgrade to get a comment. But the rest of the article didn't have every other paragraph a Serb spokesperson uh, countering what the eyewitnesses who had suffered this war crime or atrocity had endured. Um, and that's an example of how it works. Uh, most reporters who cover the Middle East remain quiet because to speak out, as I have done, is a career is career suicide. Yeah. Uh, they will come after you. They certainly came after me. Uh, and and the the professional cost is so high uh, that it's just uh, it's not worth it to most people in in the media. But the you know the, I've been in Gaza with the AP reporters and the Washington Post reporters and. None of us have any disputes about uh, Israel's wholesale slaughter of, of Palestinians. That's just, it does, it's not even contentious in any way. And can you talk to me about, you, you just mentioned that they went after you. What happened to you when you spoke out about Gaza and the Iraq war? Who went after you exactly? Well, the, the, you have to remember Israel was lobbying very heavily for the invasion of Iraq. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, in many ways, we've done Israel's bidding at a cost to ourselves, not to mention to the horrific cost to the people who live in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya and everywhere else. Um, and uh, so it, that climate after 9-11 to challenge the call to invade Iraq was very unpopular. Uh, and uh, I battled I was now because I had been the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I had a prominent platform of Charlie Rose and Terry Gross and all these shows, and uh, and the Israel lobby certainly went after me. Uh, uh, they had already gone after me because of uh, and I had taken vacation time and gone and lived in Hanayunis because I was so sick of exactly this kind of neutralizing of the reality and written a story with the great cartoonist Joe Sacco, whose footnotes in Gaza, by the way, is a masterpiece um, on Palestinian Israeli history, uh, in particular Palestinian history. It's about the 1956 massacres of Palestinians when they occupied Gaza. And uh, and so uh, I already had run into trouble with the paper, but that uh, I was booed off of a commencement stage for denouncing the war, and that led to a formal reprimand from the paper, which said that I was, and were guilt. So the union rules are that you give the employee a written reprimand, which I received, and then if the employee violates uh, the conditions set down in that written reprimand, that is grounds to fire them. Uh, and the reprimand said that I was no longer allowed to speak about the uh, Iraq war uh, because I was impugning the impartiality of the New York Times. At the same time, other correspondents like John Burns were supporting quite vocally the war. Uh, so it really wasn't about a, an right. opinion on the war. And this wasn't an opinion. It was based on seven years in the Middle East, months of my life in Iraq. Um, uh, it, it was it was challenging the dominant narrative. And then I left the paper before, but I would have been fired. And I was already being you know marginalized within uh, the institution, and then was very outspoken about Palestinian rights and became a target of APAC. So, for instance, I was received invitations to speak at Oberlin College, at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Those were all rescinded under pressure, usually from the Hillel houses on the campus that often work as APAC outposts. Uh, and then uh, I spoke at Dartmouth, and they bust in hundreds of people to uh, protest, and indeed called in bomb threats. Uh, so that everybody had to go through a metal detector into the hall. Nobody was allowed to leave their seat. Uh, same thing happened when I gave the con uh, convent, the uh, convocation address at Baruch College in New York, called in bomb threats. I had three or two New York City plainclothes police detectives with me the whole time. I mean, so, and, and the thing is, sometimes those uh, schools like Dartmouth or like Baruch will not cancel the event, uh, but it's a message to everyone else. Um, they, number one, won't invite you back because they don't want the headache. And number two, a lot of schools say we don't need it. So it's quite effective in terms of marginaling, marginalizing those of us who speak out for Palestinian rights. I think I was a, particularly a target because I was the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times. I, I was not an activist as such. I was a journalist. I had credibility. I had uh, done well at the paper. So uh, they say that within APAC, there's a list of uh, a short list of people they pretty much follow, uh, uh, you know, minutely and attempt to interfere. I certainly, certainly felt on the receiving end of that kind of interference. And, you know, Israel is obviously a proxy of the U.S. empire. It's, you know, represents the military industrial complex's bloodshed 
and war uh, in the Middle East. And, you know, personally, on a personal level, I've had experience with similar things that you mentioned, Chris, uh, being invited to speak about Syria, about, you know, U.S. intervention in Syria, U.S. intervention in Libya. And I find that these groups that show up to protest or to try to get me shut down, and this happened, by the way, to both myself and to Abby Martin and to Rania Kalik and Anya Parampil, um, these groups are all tied to uh, these pro-Israel groups. And it really goes to show that, you know, you don't have to just speak about, a, about Palestinian rights, but about anti-war. You just have to be anti-war to be targeted by these groups because Israel does represent um, U.S. military industrial complex interests in the Middle East. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the New York Times. Alan and I have been talking about Brett Stevens. Um, Alan, I know you saw the New York Times opinion piece by Brett Stevens entitled, For the Sake of Peace, Israel Must Route Hamas. What did you make of that? And what can you say about Brett Stevens' background um, and his ties to Israel? Our favorite yeah, I mean, guy, Brett Stevens. <laughs> as we were talking before, uh, when we talk about Hamas, that's really a code word for all Palestinians. And so when Brett Stevens calls for routing Hamas, it's really a call for a massacre, isn't it? In that article, he discusses, you know, Hamas kills uh, civilians at will, but, you know, an errant Israeli missile might kill a few Palestinian civilians. And that gets everybody in the world on it. He also described the attack on the Al-Aq Mosque during Ramadan, which uh, with uh, Israeli special forces, well, special police, you know, firing tear gas, rubber bullets, stun grenades into uh a group of civilians, a huge group of civilians, over 300 people were reported injured. Uh, they called that just heavy-handed policing. Um, Stevens has been at the Times for a few years now. I think he was brought on during the Trump administration when there was some soul-searching from uh, the editorial board, thinking we really have to have a diversity of opinions. But of course, that doesn't mean bringing back somebody who supports uh, Bernie Sanders or you know, getting some, you know, overt socialist on. It means moving to the right. And that's why Stevens was brought on. He's uh, an arch conservative and always has been. And he's also super passionate about Israel and defending it. And so he constantly writes about Israel all the time. I'll just read out some of the most, uh, some of his newest columns. Um, Palestinian lives don't matter. Gaza's miseries have Palestinian authors the progressive assault on Israel. Every time Palestinians say no, they lose. When anti-Zionism tunnels under your house. One thing Trump gets right, Israel's settlements are not the principal obstacle to the peace with Palestinians. Israel's democracy is doing fine. Israel and Palestine is really his favorite subject. But what's not revealed uh, in the New York Times, which I think is a really big conflict of interest, and it really breaks a lot of journalists' rules is that he has personified a paid gig uh, at an Israel advocacy group, and it's not been disclosed at all. Uh, responsible statecraft just exposed this and was talking about this. Um, that's really pretty egregious of the times, and I think it kind of shows uh, where their loyalties lie exactly in this. The times has, in general, been very supportive of pretty much any U.S. war you can talk about, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya or Syria. And by extension of that, they also are very much uh, they are very much in favor of all of the U.S.'s loyal allies, like, for instance, Israel. And that's uh, that's what we see with Brett Stevens's uh, pieces. 
And you know, for the past, um, you went to the Trump administration, came on, came on the Trump administration. I don't know why there's an echo all of a sudden. Can you guys hear that? Um, you mentioned that he came on the New York Times during the Trump administration. Um, you know, Chris, during the Trump administration, we saw, you know, massive Christian right rallying behind the state of Israel. We saw Jared Kushner uh, basically go on a massive uh, trip into the Middle East to create all of these normalization peace deals between Israel and uh, Arab dictatorships like in Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, um, and then Sudan. Talk to me about the history of these Christian right groups. You know, how did they make their way into the U.S. government, and where are they now under the Trump, under the I'm sorry, the Biden administration? Well, let's first note that the uh, violations of international law embraced by the Trump administration, including the moving of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, have not been reversed by the Biden administration. A lot of people forget that the senior Democratic leadership, like Schumer supported the moving of the embassy uh, to occupy East Jerusalem, uh, to occupy to Jerusalem in violation of international law. Uh, so, uh, well, they they came, they were the at the epicenter of power under the Trump administration. Trump had no ideology, and the Christian right filled that ideological void. So that's where you got Pence. I mean, even the people who handed COVID uh, his do- the you know the senior health officials all came out of the Christian right believe these kind of crazy conspiracy theories. Uh, you had uh, Ben Carson and Mike Pompeo and Betsy DeVos. Uh, these were the very uh, high profile figures, but filtered throughout the administration were the cadre of the Christian right, uh, and they are certainly waiting to come back. And I fear that the inability of the Biden administration to address the structural inequities that gave rise to this demagogue, uh, Trump, uh, and these Christian fascists uh, will, perhaps even by the midterms, ensure their return to power. Uh, so uh, they they have been pushed out by the old guard. Which that's what Biden right. represents, that old neoliberal, uh, you know, in essence, Republican, because the Biden and Clinton transformed in the 90s the Democratic Party into the Republican Party. Uh, on issues of law and order, on uh, uh, surrendering to corporate uh, uh, demands, uh, you know, it was uh, it was Clinton that uh, uh, carried through all the deregulations, including of the FCC, passed NAFTA, the great greatest betrayal of the American working class since the 1948 Taft Harley Act, uh, uh, destroyed Glass Steagall, uh, doubled our prison population, militarized our police, and it kind of pushed the Republican Party so far to the right, it became insane and fascistic, openly fascistic. Uh, and uh, I, this return, which was a decision of the Democratic Party donor class, remember these figures like Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, were quite outspoken during the uh, primaries that if Sanders became the nominee, which the Democratic Party was never going to allow, he would vote for Trump. They didn't like Trump because he was an embarrassment to the empire because of his ineptitude, his narcissism and everything else, uh, but they could live with him. Uh, and uh, and what they got was Biden, uh, but uh, they, they can't uh, roll back time. So uh, these people are biding their time. Uh, and I fear that the next round, 
uh, you know, we'll get a demagogue, perhaps like Tom Cotton or Pompeo, or maybe even some name we don't know yet, who, unlike Trump, is competent. Uh, and when they attempt to carry out a coup d'etat, which Trump clearly wanted to do on January 6th, he just didn't have either the uh, organizational skills or the structure to do it. Uh, you know, at that point, we're already seeing the assault on uh, voting, uh, uh, you know, then, then everything is snuffed out. So that's where they are. And Alan, um, I'm sorry, but that was a, we had an internet glitch here. Okay. So if you guys are joining us now during our live stream, we are joined by Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and Alan McLeod, our senior staff writer um, at Mint Press News. We are discussing the Christian rights history um, and their root in support of Israel in preparation for end of times prophecies and the New York Times propaganda. Um, let's see here. I would like to talk about Biden's recent rubber stamp rubber stamped $735 million weapon sales um, to Israel, something which underscores what the occupation is, which is bis big business. Uh, Chris, could you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, the collusion with the Trump administration now with the current crisis in Gaza? Or the well, Biden administration, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, Biden is, is uh, has throughout his entire political career completely been captive to, uh, you know, to the Israel uh, lobby. And, and uh, we see that there's no love for Bibi's. I knew, I knew Bibi when I was in Israel. He's a pretty unpleasant uh, character and, and uh, Biden like Obama and personally like him, but there's not much uh, they can do because of the immense political clout that the Israel lobby has. And, uh, uh, Biden is, uh, you know, he, he he's he's not going to challenge this lobby. It's too costly politically for him. Uh, you know, we talk about Russia or China, you know, interfering in the elections. This is a joke uh, compared to what Israel does, the very heavy handed interference that Israel has in the American political system, including, as I mentioned earlier, bundling hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions in every congressional district to bankroll these compliant candidates. And that is all documented on this Al Jazeera uh, four-part series, The Lobby, uh, which you can watch on Electronic Intifada. Uh, so, uh, you know, these uh, massive cash donations uh, uh, have in our system of legalized bribery make sure that the political elites are beholden to Israeli interests in the same way that they are to the interests of Goldman Sachs and Citibank for the same reason. If you remember, uh, you know, in this amazing moment in 2015, Bibi Netanyahu uh, got uh, the unconstitutional invitation. I can't stress that enough by uh, John uh, Boehner, who was then uh, Speaker of the House, to speak to the Congress to denounce Obama's Iranian nuclear agreement. Now, this so that he, the Israeli leader comes in open defiance of the Obama administration, openly allied with the Republican Party. Uh, and yet Obama in 2014 authorizes this 10-year deal of $38 billion in weapons and military aid packages to Israel. And that's, I think, a window into how captive the American political elite is to Israeli interests. I mean, and, and the Israel, let's be clear, you know, the investment works because uh, not only the, that $38 million package is 
you know, worth the, the money they put into the political system. But the U.S. has spent six or seven trillion dollars fighting these feudal wars in the Middle East that the Israel and the lobby pushed for. Uh, and, and they're not in the strategic strategic interests of the American states. In fact, I think they're accelerating the collapse of the American empire. Uh, I mean, Israel has better health care than the United States. So why are right. we giving them $38 billion in military aid? Uh, so, uh, you know, the, 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 the fact is in the Middle East, and there's great resistance within uh, the State Department and the Pentagon. I know many of these people, they know it. Well, there's not much they can do. I mean, they we serve Israel's interests at our expense. And that's long been true. And people who really know the Middle East, even within the organs of power, including the CIA, understand that. And, you know, Chris, um, a ceasefire was announced for this week. You've obviously covered and lived through many conflicts. Where do you see this conflict heading to wards in the near future? Do you see this ending anytime soon? I mean, I was just at a protest where a lot of young people believed, they legitimately, legitimately believed with, with so much passion that the United States will put an end to U.S. support for Israel. But I don't, I, I presume... No, this is going to replicate the battle against the apartheid regime in South Africa. And that took many years, and it requires uh, fervent support for the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement, which I do support, which terrifies Israel. Not because it's been effective. I don't think any very few institutions have signed on, but it has raised a consciousness about the apartheid, a colonial settler regime in Israel. It's a classic colonial settler regime, like our own. Let's not, we're not. Uh, let's not excuse ourselves for our own uh, genocide and slavery and, and theft of land and everything else. Um, uh, but it, it, Israel is increasingly, well, like the United States, becoming an international pariah. And it, this does take time. Uh, but we see cracks within the Congress, uh, certainly a discomfort within uh, the Democratic Party, at least in the House, uh, because the Democratic Party base is just not buying this anymore. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, this is an apartheid regime. I would say with one difference, the, as far as I know, the apartheid regime in South Africa never sent fighter jets into the townships to bomb defenseless people. Um, I think the brutality is actually worse in Israel. Uh, and, uh, and we have to fight, fight because at the moment the U.S. pulls the plug, Israel can't sustain this colonial settler project. It's over. And that's really has to be our goal. And when you spent time in Gaza, I know you mentioned it very briefly at the very beginning of this talk. If you could go over kind of the brutality that you witnessed firsthand, what did you see there? Well, the, I think people don't get, and uh, I think Alan was right, to, you know, and I, I, I do condemn the rocket attacks as a war crime just because legally they are. Um, Alan's right there. You know, uh, nothing compared to the uh, ordinance that Israel drops on the Palestinians. Uh, they, the massive firepower uh, that is unleashed by this ordinance uh, kills in an extremely wide radius. Uh, and so, of course, I've seen the victims. Uh, I have been in refugee camps like Hani Yunus and uh, heard, uh, you know, the boys were playing at that time. This was going back to when there were still Jewish settlements in Gaza. And they were playing near the fence and I would hear they would hire the Druze, the border police, and they would 
shout out through the loudspeaker, tal, tal, which means come in Arabic. And then they would start shouting uh, curses, uh, you know, Ibn Sharbuta and Kalb Ibn Kawli's horrible Arabic curses. And uh, the boys would start throwing stones and these people would get out uh, with uh, uh, long-barreled weapons and shoot them uh, and either kill them or wound them severely. And I wrote down their names. I went to the hospital and in some cases their funerals. And this is what drove Israel nuts. Uh, so, you know, because it was just, I had the date, the time, the name, the, uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, it's the savagery of occupation, uh, much what we do to Iraqis and Afghans. There's not any different colonial settler wars or where foreign occupiers come in and impose their will by force, uh, create what Robert J. Lifton calls atrocity producing situations, because as soon as you leave the perimeter of your compound, everybody is defined as the enemy and therefore a legitimate target, which is exactly what Israel does. And we have to remember that a lot of times uh, these units uh, in Iraq, whether through IEDs or in Israel, they can take casualties, but they don't see the people attacking them. Uh, And so people, units begin to lose people. Uh, This is why Israel, by the way, is not going to invade Gaza, because the last time they went in, they took very heavy casualties. It's why they won't invade southern Lebanon. They won't take that chance anymore. I think there was an Israeli general who a few days ago said Israel can't fight on the ground anymore. Uh, And so uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, assault that uh, Israel carries out uh, is one that is increasingly reliant on technology, but in fact, of course, that's a sign uh, of weakness. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to describe the horror of what's happening in Gaza now and and what happens during these assaults, because very little of it is conveyed. Most of it is censored out. You know, and I agree with your point that the more weaponry that they use, the more, you know, hard they go on to the people. Uh, That is a sign of weakness, because uh, it's the same concept that we see in this information war. They are so clamping down on the information that is coming out of Gaza, out of Palestine, um, and independent media. That's why uh, they're using such harsh and extreme tactics to silence dissenting voices and to silence the coverage coming out of Palestine, to silence the truth. Um, Alan, um you know, I'm curious, what sort of pressure does Israel try to put on journalists and media outlets and public figures to get them uh, to toe the line internationally? And then if you could, I'll ask this maybe when you're done again, but we want to talk about solutions too in fighting this information war. Yeah, sure. So I'm part of the Glasgow University Media Group. And about 10 years ago, we put, we put a, a book called uh, Bad News from Israel and then More Bad News from Israel. Uh, in which we uh, interviewed a bunch of British journalists at the BBC and major newspapers. And one BBC employee said that, uh, and I quote, we wait in terror for the phone call from the Israelis to come. And they were extremely worried that whenever they uh, they talked about Israel-Palestine on the news, they would get this uh, call from the Israeli government. But, um, you know, the Israeli government does have a pretty sophisticated network of uh, flack, of, uh, you know, paying think tanks, you know, putting people in senior positions. But I also want to stress that um, it's only really got power because we allow it to have power, because people in Washington and the elite in uh, the West more generally see Israel as one of their key allies. 
And so, um, yeah, people at the top do not like it when you criticize Israel. So the main, um, the main sort of uh, disciplining measures actually come from your editors, your bosses' bosses, the people in the, uh, the, the great and the good of American society, which really do not want to see Israel uh, condemned or the truth come out. And so really, if you start to report in a much more accurate, honest way, you might find your career um, possibilities being limited. You probably won't be getting a callback from your magazine, your, your newspaper, your network if you talk about it. Um, a great example of this is Mark Lamont Hill, who in 2014, I believe, he was a CNN uh, contributor, and he said that he wanted to see uh, a Palestine, a free Palestine from the river to the sea. Uh, he said that at the United Nations, and it elicited just a storm of condemnation from uh, groups like APAC, which said that this is a kind of uh, call for the destruction of Israel, and it's also repeating a Hamas trope. And so Lamont Hill was essentially handed out of his profession. We've seen other critics of Israel in um, in academia as well, like, uh, say, Stephen Salato or Norman Finkelstein, lose opportunities uh, in their field, lose their tenure. I think we're losing we're losing Alan a little bit. Um, Alan, are you there? Okay, we lost Alan. So I actually just have one final question for you, uh, Chris, which is, um, you know, what sort of ways can people fight uh, big tech media censorship um, and the mon- and the monopolistic power that they hold in terms of covering war issues? Well, they don't hold monopoly power anymore, and they're trying to get it back. And the way they're doing it is using uh, digital media platforms, Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter to impose algorithms, uh, because if you go back a few decades, there were three established news broadcasts, CBS, NBC, ABC. Uh, There was the New York Times. The power of the New York Times, by the way, uh, wasn't that everyone read it. It's that it set the news agenda. So, for instance, uh, if I was uh, covering anything uh, that night, I was sure to get a visit from the producers of the three and networks that were there for CNN was there and they wanted to know what I was writing tomorrow for the New York times, because that's what their editors would tell them to go and cover. Uh, and that power has been broken by uh, the rise of all sorts of alternative news outlets like your own. Uh, and, and, uh, but they're trying to uh, use uh, censorship and algorithms to shut these voices down because they have been effective uh, and funnel be people back into the mainstream. Uh, so we all went on strike at Truth Dig, and when the publisher tried to fire Bob Shear, and we said we wanted to form a union, she shut the site down and fired all of us. We now write for Shear Post, which Bob started up. But um, uh, that last 12 months, we saw that they did a graph, the IT people, uh, and uh, the referrals by impression. So if you went to Google, you typed imperialism, and I had written something on imperialism recently, it would come up with anything else. Those referrals uh, were shut down, and they declined from over 700,000 to below 200,000, or probably even below that. And they've used that and uh, quite effectively uh, in, these, in these kind of uh, unseen uh, forms of censorship uh, at the behest of uh, the Israel lobby and against critics of imperialism and anti-capitalism. So uh, the the hegemony that the old media had got broken. 
uh, but they're working feverishly to get it back. And they and Silicon Valley is, you know, we saw it, for instance, when uh, Twitter locked uh, the New York Post out of its own account because it exposed the contents on Hunter Biden's laptop. That was a perfect right. example of, uh, but they're doing this constantly. They're doing it to me. They're doing it to you. Uh, and uh, and they're doing it on behalf of the neoliberal Democratic Party elite. Um, and then you get the New York Times, which benefits from it because the idea is that they are going to channel people to quote unquote reputable, impartial, objective news sources like the Post, like the Times. So there's a collusion between these old established media centers and the very active forms of electronic censorship that are sensing, uh, you know, attempting to shut down our voices. And I talk about that same point too, is that a lot of liberals don't even realize that it's the neoliberal democratic class who are leading the way in this censorship campaign uh, while they partner up with Israeli intelligence and Israeli military, uh, U.S. intelligence, U.S. military, and uh, think tanks that are funded literally by NATO and weapons manufacturers uh, to, you know, to control the free flow of information in this country. Um, so that is actually going to be a wrap for today's uh, live stream. Uh, Chris Hedges, thank you so much for joining us today. And Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. We are going to uh, have this live stream up on our YouTube page and our Twitch channel and our Facebook page. And then we're also going to convert it into a podcast. So we appreciate anybody who can share this to help us beat social media algorithms. That's a wrap. Thank you so much, guys. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.